And thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 315, Battle of the Points. Last time, General Homa's forces were able to win the northern half of the Bataan Peninsula by putting men onto the foothills of the supposedly impenetrable mountain Atib. And when the defensive lines of both of MacArthur's corps were breached, the general ordered a pullback on the evening of January 22nd to about the midpoint of the peninsula. Here, the land area was more narrow, so the defensive line would be continuous, which, hopefully, would be enough to delay the attackers for weeks, or perhaps even months. The new defensive line was from Bagak on the west coast to Orion on the east coast. Yet, holding on to the advantages of defense in depth, MacArthur had some of his forces pull back even further to set up a rear line at the most northern point of the joint security area that went from Kaibobo Point on the west coast to LeMay in the east. Though the Battle of Britain was going his way, General Homa was not happy. He had lost many men just to get this far, and he still had the rest of the peninsula to go, plus Corregidor Island, where MacArthur was holed up. So, switching up his tactics, he would employ deception over brute force. The idea was to attack MacArthur's right flank while landing men behind his left flank with several amphibious landings. The confusion that would ensue should allow the main defensive line to be broken, while the amphibious forces cut supply and communication lines. Few armies could survive such a one-two punch. It didn't hurt Homa's plan that the southern area would be guarded by the units of the Philippine Constabulary, along with the now shipless naval and planeless Air Corps personnel. The question was, would they be tough enough. General Homa was hoping to score multiple wins with this move, which would be called the Battle of the Points by history. First, if all went well, the defending troops along the current defensive line would have to pull back in case the amphibious assaults appeared to be winning. This would allow Homa's men along the main battle line to surge south. Second, the port city of Merivelles on the southern end of the Bataan Peninsula could be taken. This connected the troops on the peninsula with MacArthur's command post on Corregidor. Lastly, though MacArthur was on the island, if the joint secure area on the peninsula just above Merivelles could be taken, the defenders' supplies and medical facilities could be destroyed or captured. Homo was hoping a victory with this pincer movement would lead to victory of the overall war. But giving the Allied troops no reprieve, while the amphibious end runs were underway, the Battle of the Pockets would begin as the main line from Bagak to Orion would be attacked. The Japanese surge here would quickly create two pockets of trapped Japanese troops and a salient in First Corps' area of operations, that is, General Wainwright's forces on the left flank. But first, the Battle of the Points. This amphibious attack gets its name from the points of land that juts out from the peninsula's southwest coast. With Lieutenant General Nara Akira ordered to still focus on the east coast, Major General Naoki Kimura 
who was in charge of the amphibious Enruns. Thus, he would use the 1st and 2nd Battalions of the 20th Infantry Regiment that had helped break through Wainwright's lines further north. This was a risk, of course, as the Japanese units would be outnumbered, but success was possible, as they were counting on speed, stealth, but mostly surprise. Their mission was to cause confusion and, more importantly, panic. If this worked, the Allies would be destabilized, and the main defensive line would be shattered on both coasts. The men of Nara, that is, on the Allied far right, would drive for the southern tip of the peninsula, while the remainder of Kumura's men would push south on the west coast to save their comrades along the points. As the amphibious plan was fleshed out, one battalion would leave Moran further north up the west coast, and the second battalion would leave from further north at Olongapo and act as a reserve. Kimura wanted the second battalion to land at Kaibobo Point, which was the west coast anchor of the second defensive line. Just below that was the joint security area. Kimura was hoping that his men would land, the defenders would panic, move away from the coast, and the more experienced Allied soldiers to the north, along Wainwright's line, would have to fall back to engage the intruders. This would allow the rest of Kimura's men on the western half of the line to charge south and hopefully keep the enemy on the run until they reached the end of the peninsula and either were slaughtered or surrendered. The eight landing barges, filled with 900 men of the 2nd Battalion, 20th Infantry Regiment, left during the night of January 22nd. Led by Lieutenant Colonel Nariyoshi Tsunehiro, a leader respected by his men and his superiors, he was determined to make a success of this, despite so much being stacked against him and his. First, he had only been given a five-day warning to prepare. Hence, his men would depart while being ill-equipped and unprepared in case things went awry. Worse, his maps were large-scale, rendering no assistance with the landings, and the reconnaissance report he received was of little help in determining who and how many he would be facing. Further, if he ran into trouble, Japanese artillery would be too far away to assist. Still, if the Allied left flank was broken, Tsunohiro would soon be met by his comrades from the north, so all would be well. And it had to be, as these troops only brought enough food and ammunition for a few days. However, right away, little went right for Tsunohiro's men, not that it was their fault. As they started their journey, the soldiers quickly realized, as did the coxswains driving the barges, that the west coast was just a series of cliffs or high bluffs, and they all looked exactly the same, certainly at night. Iwan Point, Napo Point, Mabulan Point, Karagman Point, Kaiboyak Point, and so on. No discerning features. Next, the seas were rougher than expected, and the drivers were unfamiliar with the swift tides of the South China Seas. The boats were making better-than-expected time, not that the drivers knew where they were going. Then one of the barges had engine trouble. Wasting no time, it would be towed by another, 
But that's when an American PT boat came into view, commanded by Lieutenant John D. Bokali, and it came in firing all the while. Right away, two barges were sunk, and the American vessel, knowing that the element of surprise was gone, turned and left, considering this a good night's work. Soon a hero could not lose any more ships. He assumed, and he was right, that the American vessel had probably not spotted the other barges further to the rear. So, wanting to save as many men as possible, the small flotilla was broke into two squadrons. Sune Hiro's group, the majority of the force, about 600 Hohei, landed four miles south of their destination at Quinawan Point instead of Kaibobo Point, as planned. And this was only because he wanted to have his men on shore before the sun rose, when they would be easier to spot. As for the second squadron, they again, not realizing the speed of the tides, actually went seven miles even further south and landed at Longos Kawayan, actually along the southern coastline, at 8.40 a.m. January 23rd. The good news, relatively speaking, for this second squadron was that they had landed less than a mile from the port town of Marivelles. Not that they knew this when they landed, not that it mattered, as the former air crews, naval personnel, and local constabulary, with only two weeks of training in how to be an infantryman, would come out to meet them and give a good account of themselves. The successful defense here at Longos Kawayan, along the southern coast, was due in part to the Navy having set up an observation post on Mount Pukat, some 617 feet above sea level, just west of the town of Marivelle. Hence, when the 300 or so men landed near there at 8.40 a.m. on January 23rd, they were spotted right away. As the 300 Japanese troops started moving inland, Commander Frank Bridget, in command at Marivelle's, had about 600 men. However, only a section of this unit was actually armed and ready to meet the enemy. So, Marines and sailors were sent out to engage the enemy. But not taking any chances, Bridget asked his superior for reinforcements. The response to this was one pursuit squadron and a 2.95-inch mountain pack howitzer from the 71st Division. Later, more reinforcements would arrive from the 301st Chemical Company. As the Marines and sailors moved out, soon they made contact with an advanced detachment of enemy troops who were already fortifying Mount Pukat, but they were not dug in yet. Attacking right away, the Marines took the height, causing many casualties and or wounded among the enemy, and then moved on to clean out the machine gun nests along the slopes, who were also in the middle of setting up. As for the sailors with them, they had been sent along a different path and ran into a Japanese patrol who opened fire right away, killing several of the Americans. Either way, the enemy was contained and taking losses. That night, the American 301st Chemical Company troops arrived to reinforce the barrier in front of the enemy. However, the Americans on Mount Pukat woke up on January 24th to a surprise. As they had been sleeping, the Japanese, using darkness, again a favorite tactic, 
moved forward and retook the place on the west and south slopes that they had lost. It must be noted that when one of the Japanese soldiers observed some of the sailors, he was so sure that no one could be this backward in tactics that he believed the Americans were trying some new distraction ploy. Quote, Whenever these apparitions reached an open space, they would attempt to draw Japanese fire by sitting down, talking loudly, and lighting cigarettes. Unquote. Of course, this was not a tactic, but rather an almost complete lack of ground warfare knowledge. No matter, the Marines and sailors again attacked the Japanese and managed to push them off the slopes, closer to the water's edge. When darkness came, the Americans were once again in control of Mount Pukat. However, the would-be invaders were too well dug in to be pushed any further back, not without taking severe casualties in the process. Thus, a stalemate ensued, which benefited the defenders as it surely stymied the attacker's plan. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Getting back to the larger landing of Colonel Tsunehiro and his 600 men. At first, they ran into a vertical cliff of some 65 feet. No matter, orders were yelled to start climbing. And that's what the men did, by grabbing whatever roots, vines, fissures and rocks, or whatever was firm enough to hold their weight and that of their packs. Now on the height, Sunehiro broke his men into three companies and sent out patrols. One patrol exchanged fire with an enemy unit, and another patrol spotted other enemy units. Clearly, the Filipino and American troops were nearby. Thus, Sunehiro had his men dig trenches for protection. A few hours later, between the foxholes, trenches, and firing positions picked out from among all the tall trees, the Japanese had a respectable defense. This was possible due to their intense physical training. Another part of their training, the almost constant physical abuse during their earlier years, had taught them never to complain or to show weakness. And that helped the men who immediately found out that the canopy, some 100 feet above their heads, blocked out the sun. But it also blocked out any fresh air, which created 
horrible breathing conditions. Yet all this heat turned chilly when the sun went down. Quinoan Point is a half mile wide and three-fourths of a mile long. The only clearing there was was a path cut by a logging company years ago, which eventually led to the West Road. And this was soon a hero's goal, for his men to reach the West Road and cut Wainwright's supplies and communications. But to travel along this path single file was to walk into an ambush, or at the very least, leave oneself in an indefensible position. Instead, Sunehiro had his men stay close to their dugouts. As the enemy knew they were there, it was only a matter of time before someone came looking for them, and it was then that the men of Sunehiro would attack. Defending the area was the 34th Pursuit Squadron, but sadly, they were out of their element and using 50 caliber machine guns with improvised firing mechanisms. Hence, the guns could be fired, but there was a process. Yet, when the airmen discovered that the enemy had come ashore so close nearby, they panicked, fired their rifles, didn't even bother with the machine guns, and backed away. The enemy landing at Quinoan Point was reported to General Clyde A. Selleck, commander of the Philippine 71st Division, at 2.30 a.m., on January 23rd, six hours before the Logos Kawayan landing was reported to him further south. And so, not knowing that a second landing was about to happen, Selleck sent Colonel Irving Alexander, who had been instructing the 1st Philippine Constabulary with the 3rd Battalion of that regiment, to engage the enemy and push them back into the sea. So the 3rd Battalion was on its way with Colonel Alexander, but it would take most of the day of January 23rd for them to reach the enemy. Until then, the airmen and sailors did what they could, which was not much, as the Sunehiro's defensive line was not moved. Then, however, the properly trained 3rd Battalion Philippine Constabulary put in an appearance. They pushed the enemy back to 600 yards from the tip of the peninsula. But that was when the Japanese dug in their heels. Next, Colonel Alexander tried to outflank the enemy, but ironically, there was not enough room, as the fighting line was so near the edge of the cliff. Not being able to get the job done, Alexander sent a message to General Selleck, asking for tanks, artillery, and more men, hoping to get the Philippine scouts. Colonel Alexander would not be sent tanks. They were needed to help contain the enemy along the main line to the north. In their place would be two Bren gun carriers, the 21st Pursuit Squadron, a company of constabulary troops, and a provisional company formed from Selleck's 71st Division's headquarter company. Yet, confusing this entire issue of defending Quinawan Point, MacArthur would be given imperfect information about the lackluster fighting of the Allies. Hence, in a matter of days, the responsibility of holding back Sunehiro's men would change three times. Colonel Alexander would have to give way to General Selleck, though it must be said Alexander would have to fall back anyway, as he had been shot in the hand. Selleck was ordered to take charge personally by MacArthur, but 
The next day, he was replaced by Colonel Clinton A. Pierce. Another MacArthur change-up. So, the next few days went like this. The Japanese would be attacked. They would hold off the enemy, who would then depart. Next, that evening or night, the Japanese would move forward somewhere between 50 or 100 yards, and they would dig new foxholes, three feet deep, two feet wide, six to eight feet long, and always in an arc. By the end of the third day, the Japanese line was halfway up the finger of land. It could have been more, but each time the Allies returned, it seemed that their bullets or shells never ran out. Thus, the brave Japanese had to bow to reality. Still, it was clear to the Allies that experienced men, or at least artillery, was going to be needed to get the enemy out of their foxholes. So, on the 26th, the 88th Field Artillery was ordered to get involved. One battery of 75mm guns went to Quinawan Point, and the other to Longos Kawayan Point in the south. This being the situation, Kimura sent the Reserve 1st Battalion to help out. They departed on their barges on January 26th. Hoping to land at Quinawan Point, the idea was to support the 2nd Division that had landed there. But again, the 1st Battalion missed as well but not by much this time, landing at Ayasan Point, about a half a mile to the south. With this landing, even though the two other landings were contained, the Americans were now laser-focused in this area, given the potential for disaster. Hence, the 45th Infantry Regiment was sent and arrived in the General Quinawan area on January 27th. Additionally, the most southern landing at Longos Kawayan would face the 57th Infantry Regiment as it had been sent out on the 27th as well. The last thing MacArthur needed was a serious battle this close to his port city. Fortunately for the Allies, the 57th Infantry Regiment was more than a match for the invaders. It didn't hurt that more artillery was brought into play. 81-millimeter mortars were lobbed at the Japanese, who were pushed back, but not destroyed or captured. The closer the Japanese got to the water's edge, the more concentrated their collective fire became, which resulted in more Allied casualties. With the Japanese on the south coast pushed back almost as far as they could go, but still defiant, permission was given to use the eight 12-inch or 305-millimeter mortars of Corregidor's Battery Geary. Around midnight on January 26th, the shelling commenced. Though 16 rounds of the 67-pound land attack projectiles were let loose after the first four, the Japanese positions could no longer be seen as fires were started by the fourth shell. As this was the first use of a large-caliber seacoast U.S. artillery against an enemy since the U.S. Civil War, the Japanese were unprepared. One would later write, We were terrified. We could not see where the big shells or bombs were coming from. They seemed to be falling from the sky. Some of my companions jumped off the cliff to escape the terrible fire. And yet, the tenacious Japanese hung in there. The Allies could not move them out. 
That same evening, the battery of 75mm guns started to arrive. And on January 27th at 7 a.m., the 75mm guns opened up. The two 81mm mortars opened up. The 2.95-inch pack howitzers opened up. And finally, the battery Geary opened up. The barrage lasted for more than an hour, and during that time, no one on the southern end of Bataan or on Corregidor could hear anything other than the guns. Afterward, the Allied infantry moved in. Incredibly, not only did the Japanese continue to resist after this, but they actually found a break in the Allied line and slipped through. Soon a part of the naval battalion was threatened with complete slaughter. The guns had to be retargeted to avert this. By the end of the day, the Japanese were still resisting and threatening nearby Marivelles. The next day, January 28th, in the evening, 500 scouts of the 2nd Battalion of the 57th Infantry, led by Lieutenant Colonel Hal C. Granberry, moved up close and relieved the shaken naval battalion. Moving closer, they readied themselves, while the various large guns readied themselves for another bombardment. On the morning of January 29th, the scouts actually moved back, but they were not disheartened, as they knew what awaited the enemy. At 7 a.m. that morning, again, all the guns opened up, but this time the minesweeper USS Quail got in close to go after specific enemy targets. The shelling finally died down at 8.55 a.m. It was then the scouts moved out. Incredibly, not only had some of the enemy survived this latest artillery attack, but they actually moved forward from the previous night. Then the two sides clashed. The scouts, who were trained and well-prepared, versus the demoralized and suffering Japanese. By 11.30 a.m., the question had been all but decided. And having the enemy all but crushed, Colonel Granberry brought forward Company F to finish off what was left with the Naval Battalion to give them more combat experience. The few Japanese survivors were amazed to the point of not believing, when they were told how far south they had traveled. Not until they were shown the Japanese cemetery at Longos Kawayam Point did they grasp that not only were they all alone, but that Kimura and Tsunehiro had no idea of their location or existence. But back to the southwest coast, the Japanese units at Quinawan Beach and Ayasan Point were effectively being held up, so Kimura sent a third wave on February 1st. The idea was for this wave of troops to land at Quinawan Beach to help push out from there. Unfortunately, the vessels missed their targets again. Also, unfortunately, there was a full moon. So, as the sun set, at least two PT boats came in and engaged the would-be invaders, and the PTs would return again later that night and sink more enemy ships. When all was said and done, half of this third wave was gone before reaching land, 
It's not clear if any of the planes, there were four P-40s left, caused any of the enemy barges to sink with their attacks, but their strafing afterwards certainly did inflict casualties. The survivors landed at Kanas Point, just north of Quinawan Beach. With this new threat, the defenders in the area now sent troops to this location. Moreover, General Weaver, the tank commander, was ordered to send one of his two tank battalions to meet this new threat. Not that the tanks would be the end-all, be-all answer to the Japanese. As the jungle was so thick, the invaders had little trouble sneaking up close to a tank to engage its crew with grenades. As for their infantry support, the men were told to walk about 100 yards behind the armored vehicles. The Allies still had more to learn about jungle warfare. Another Japanese trick was to spring out of the jungle and attach a mine to the side of a tank and then run away just before it exploded or tie a string to a mine and drag it in front of the approaching tank at the last second. It took a while, but the infantry figured out how to better support their tanks before they were all lost. By this point, it's clear that Kimura's plan was in tatters, not that his troops gave up. As the fighting went on, the men hid in caves and the like, biding their time, just knowing their comrades to the north would break through the line and rescue them. The Allies were finding out firsthand the Hohei were not allowed to, and never expected, to surrender. But because they would not surrender, and the fighting to the north stayed to the north, the men of the two Japanese battalions were hunted down. Soon, light tanks, more artillery, and more men were added to this hunt. The amphibious incursion at Quinawan Bay ended bloodily, on February 8th. Then the artillery there was shifted north to meet the latest threat at Ayasan Point. Moreover, the Allied troops were replaced with fresh men as the Japanese were almost out of what supplies they had brought. Thus, this last holdout was squeezed as the hours went by. But the main reason it was holding out was that Major Kimura himself had landed with the troops. It's not clear if he meant to, but as half of his convoy had been wiped out, he probably deemed it best not to try to make the journey home. So his men were taking their cue from his determination. Still, it was hopeless by now, as Kimura himself sent a message to his superior, saying, The battalion is about to die gloriously. But headquarters did not want this. It was a waste of men and leadership. So the 21st Engineer Regiment was sent on 30 boats on February 7th to rescue those who were still left. But as they came close to shore, the Allied reception that awaited them was so intense, again including the last P-40s, that the barges quickly turned around and left empty-handed. A rescue attempt would be made again the next night, and 34 men would be brought safely out, again out of 600. There were no other attempts after this. But not giving up, orders were put into bamboo tubes and parachuted over Kimura's location. The order said that his men had to try to escape, even if that meant 
jumping into the South China Sea and swimming north. As there was no other option, many of the men did just this. But a copy of this order had been found and translated by the Allies. Hence, Filipino and American troops lined up along the various points and got in some much-needed target practice. Amazingly, a few of the men actually made it back north, but the vast majority were killed or drowned. But Major Kimura, who had stayed on shore, was not giving up yet. Sending out scouts on February 12th, Kimura found a 100-yard gap in the line made by the 2nd Battalion, 45th Infantry Regiment. He and the last 200 of his men began to run. In their way was a patrol who were quickly taken down by the desperate men. Then Kimura and company ran into two machine gun crews. Never stopping to seriously engage, the Japanese troops overran the two positions, killing all before them. Yet before the Allied troops went down, they took with them 30 enemy troops. Next, the retreating Japanese men came upon the command posts of the 17th Pursuit and Company F of the 45th Infantry Regiment near the Silaim River. Again, the retreaters never stopped and inflicted, and in their turn were inflicted, with casualties. At 10 a.m. that same morning, the original gap that allowed the Japanese to start their retreat north was plugged. And now that it was, the line went forward to chase down Kimura and his men. The fighting lasted all day. The Japanese were brave and killed some of their enemy, but all the while their own men would fall as they backtracked ever closer towards the beach. The next day, February 13th, the fighting started up again, with the dance of the day before repeating itself. The Japanese fought to keep the enemy at bay, all the while backing up closer to the shoreline. By 3 p.m., the Allied troops reached the beach. All around them, but mostly behind them, were dead enemy bodies. Some had chose to swim away, but whether they made it back north is anyone's guess. The Battle of the Points was over. The Japanese lost about 900 men. As far as can be ascertained, only 34 men of the amphibious landings were rescued. Next time, we'll go back north and cover the Battle of the Pockets, General Homa's attempt to break the main defensive line and drive the Allied troops back to the southern edge of Bataan. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, very sorry about the background noise, very sorry about the bad audio here, but I've been forced out of my office. I've got uh, work guys here, and the kids are taking over doing homeschooling. But anyway, I just wanted to do this real quick. Um, I just wanted to say hi to the latest members, Zach Kaplan from Lancaster, New York, Joseph Irwin from Atlanta, Georgia, and Ronnie Barrow from Shoreline, Washington. And I think Ronnie also made a donation. So Ronnie, thank you very much. As far as those who have donated, uh, Karen Molino, and uh, Karen, good luck with your master's uh, program in history. Uh, Luke Robo, Rabo, 
Carlos Sandrin. Thank you, Carlo, very much. And uh, Ken Worst for making uh, donations. Um, then there was um, another gentleman who sent me episode 200 so I could put that back in the lineup. So I think it's Tomo or Thomo. I'm sorry, either way, but thank you very much for sending me episode 200. As far as I know, everything is back to normal, and I really do appreciate it. So um, I will be having a guest on soon to talk about kind of the background of FDR, but we'll keep going with the story of the Battle of Bataan, and then we'll just go from there. So as always, take care, everyone.